This is Campus Voices. Issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. A public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU. Good morning. Welcome to Campus Voices. I'm Rick Alloway, and as always, we thank you for your time on this Sunday morning. My guest this morning is Walter Ted Carter, Jr., who is the eighth president of the University of Nebraska system, having uh, stepped into that role on January 1st of this year. And we welcome him to the program this morning to talk about uh, his role as the president of the system, his views and his dreams for the system over the next few years, and whatever else comes to mind. So, President Carter, thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. Rick, it's good to be with you and good to be with your listeners on this Sunday. So you take office on January 1st of 2020, and uh, three months later, the world kind of turns upside down. You, uh, you, you stepped into this role at a very tumultuous time. What's it been like on this roller coaster since you uh, took office in January? Well, just like everyone, uh, we're, we're living with the changes that this has uh, made to our temporary lives, and in some cases, uh, you know how we're going to live life permanently down a road, which we're still learning about. Uh, but I will say right up front, as you went through my timeline, uh, I came here to Nebraska just about exactly a year ago on October 31st uh, as the priority candidate. And uh, it's been an amazing year. I've, I've really, really enjoyed getting to meet and know so many Nebraskans. Uh, and it actually, in some ways, seems like I've been here longer, um, you know, having just retired out of the Navy a year ago and now uh, being so immersed in this job. I'm just really thankful to be here and be a Nebraskan. And we are thankful that you're here as well. You're, you're helming the university at a, a challenging time in a lot of different respects. Uh, to the COVID issue, tell us a little bit about uh, what your role has been in uh, being the leader of all of our four campuses and working with the various chancellors in the university's COVID-19 response. Right. So as many of your viewers know, the university president here is a, is a system president. So I oversee not just the, uh, the flagship at Lincoln, but uh, the University of Nebraska at Omaha, uh, the medical center in Omaha, our rural campus out in Kearney, as well as our uh, two-year associate's degree program out at Curtis for the uh, Nebraska um, uh, College of Technical Agriculture. So you know, it's a really large enterprise. We're talking 52,000 students now, uh, 16,000 faculty and staff. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, what my role is, is to make sure that I provide the right level of leadership, the policy guidance, working with our border regions who have a fiduciary oversight responsibility for the university, and making sure that our campus leaders, our chancellors, have the right resources to do their job. And I've just been so impressed uh, with every level of leadership uh, from our chancellors to the campus faculty senates to our student leadership to the students themselves, families. I mean, Nebraskans care about this university like no other uh, state university system. So I'm very plugged into that. It didn't take me long to figure that out. Um, but my role here is really to kind of provide that strategic framework for these campuses to thrive and that's certainly been a challenge here as we've learned a lot more about the global pandemic and all the other issues related to that that have occurred here just in the last seven months. And this situation is so fluid. It's one unlike any of us have ever dealt with before. Uh, how has that made this challenge of, of, uh, of having to be so nimble and responsive across such a wide campus? We've always called it the 500 mile campus in this state. Uh, not only in terms of geography and the various programs, but also the fact that 
this uh, the pandemic and the, and the disease has morphed so much over over a short period of time that we've had to readjust our planning and our and our potential paths uh, through it. Yeah, a couple of key points there. First is, uh, you know, we have to recognize our medical experts at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. We have one of the, you know, the, the global leaders uh, in the study of infectious disease. We're very fortunate to have them work so closely with us. Uh, and we have listened to them, listened to their thoughts. Uh, we have followed the science. Uh, we knew uh, as really about early March that this was really gonna be something we we're gonna to have to deal with. Of course, we couldn't really grasp or understand the scope and the magnitude, uh, but we also realized around that April, May timeframe that uh, no matter what was gonna happen uh, with uh, uh, you know, any type of uh, way to fight this disease uh, in terms of a cure, uh, that we were going to have COVID-19 around us well through the fall, well through the winter, and we, quite honestly, probably into the spring. So that, that was really important. We knew we had to figure out how to get on with our lives, how to deliver the mission of education to our 52,000 students. Um, so we made some pretty big decisions right up front, uh, one of which was to make sure that we had enrollment as close to right as we possibly could, and we focused on Nebraskans first. That was the uh, that was the impetus behind uh, a strategy that we were already working on uh, to offer Nebraska Promise. And that's the free tuition program uh, for families and uh, Nebraskans who make $60,000 adjusted gross income or less, freezing tuition over the next two years. And then one of the biggest things we did was saying, we're going to be open for uh, on-campus learning. And we made that announcement in May. And that might have seemed a little early to make that statement. Uh, it was a little bold. We did that ahead of most other universities, but we did that knowing that if we worked hard enough and worked collaboratively with faculty, staff, our students, families uh, who told us that they wanted to be on campus, that we could do it as safe as we possibly can. And here we are, we're well through halfway through the semester. And yes, we've had some challenges at the beginning. Certainly we've had some positive cases, but we have stabilized, even as the rest of the state and the nation are seeing you know, pretty big spikes in community spread, we're not necessarily seeing those on campus. So I'm really proud of the, uh, the behavior that we've seen, not just out of our students, but our faculty and staff, because we've gonna we're gonna have to learn how to deal with this. Other things are gonna go on. Uh, it'll be a long time before this is ever uh, over with. Uh, and th this is the challenge of our lifetime right now. It is, without doubt. And you mentioned a couple things I want to uh, probe a little bit more deeply with you. One, you talked about enrollment. And uh, I know that even before the pandemic set in that uh, universities across the world, but in certain cases in our particular patch here, given the fact that uh, our high school enrollments have not exactly gone through the roof recently, but uh, we have been wrestling even before the pandemic with how to attract bright young folks to come to the university. And you have done, and in, in, in concert with our chancellors, have done, I think, what has to be considered nothing less than an admirable job in bucking that national trend, predicting some steep declines because of the uh, pandemic. And specifically, there have been some gains I know you're proud of among first generation and minority and underrepresented students. Uh, how has that gone so far in terms of what you had hoped? And what do you think are some of the reasons why we have bucked the, the trend nationally in some cases? Well, if you were to take a step back and look at the five-year strategy that we unveiled in August and some of the things that we did preceding that that were built into that strategy, 
it really came down to affordability, accessibility, and growth. So opening doors for those that might not have thought a college education was available to them, making our education, regardless of whether we're talking about Lincoln, Omaha, Kearney, the best value education, not just in the state, but in the country, and then growth, which is not just about student numbers, graduation rate, it's really about student success and taking that success from an undergraduate, graduate, or PhD program and moving that into the workforce. So that's really the big picture of what my vision for the university is. And even though we were in the middle of a global pandemic where the national discourse was that colleges and universities were gonna see significant enrollment decline, much, much worse than we even thought they would be. And as you pointed out, um, we here at the university system were, were declining in our enrollment over the last three years. You know, small declines, but even a one to one and a half percent starts to eat away uh, at what you're doing in terms of student success and growing our state. So we focus primarily on Nebraskans first uh, in this uh, leading up to the fall semester. And you're right, we did completely reverse the national trend. Uh, Rick, you may know that uh, well over half the colleges across the entire United States, roughly about 5,000 colleges and universities have reported out their census for the uh, 2020 fall season. So the national numbers are there and they're not gonna move much from where they are right now. 4% decline overall. Um, incoming freshman classes are, are down uh, 15 to 16%. And if you were to go by region, uh, the Midwestern colleges and universities have the worst numbers of any region in the country. Uh, and you can look to our neighbors in Iowa, they're down 9% overall. And yet here at Nebraska, we are up 1% by sharp contrast. And maybe more impressively, we're up over 2% in Nebraskans on every campus. And as you pointed out, we're up in first generation and underrepresented minorities on every single campus. And the national trend in those two categories is down by double digits. So it's a remarkable reversal of a national trend that we are enjoying here in Nebraska. And I, I think the programs we set out were not done just for COVID-19. The timing of them was to, you know, battle what people were thinking about, you know, taking a gap year, you know, do I, you know, maybe just want to go to work and try to, you know, save some money. Uh, we have, we could have easily been down five to 10%. Did we lose some international students? Absolutely. But even with that loss of international students, which for us is about 15% overall, 18% at the flagship at Lincoln, we were still up overall. Our out-of-state students were up, our graduate programs were up significantly, and our online programs, no surprise to anybody, were up uh, well over 15% and continue to grow. So I'm very proud of our admissions team. I made a statement to our team that everybody on every campus is gonna be an admissions officer for the, uh, the time going forward. And uh, everybody responded to that. So I'm just really proud of how people have said, you know, the university matters and my education matters. And you just hit on what I think is a really key point there because I know a lot of folks looking at higher education are saying, well, numbers are down. This only concerns them because it's a business decision. You know, it deals with the amount of revenue coming in and the ability to hire good people. And it's all about, the dollars and cents for business, but the way you shape this and the way your strategic plan shapes it is education is critical to this part of the country. It's critical to our, to our local and our national economy. It's critical to the lives of the students who come here. So for us, it's more a matter of 
this is an opportunity that you need to have as a student and less about what the numbers don't mean as much to us in terms of overall dollars as they do to the potential loss of educational opportunity to students. Rick, you're exactly right. And, you know, we are a major enterprise. We're a big economic driver for the state just in doing what we do. But if you were to take a look back 20 years at the university, every time there's been an economic belt tightening or even the, you know, the beginning of an economic crisis, the first reaction on most universities to include us here at the university system is to immediately raise tuition. Uh, we have a history of raising tuition as much as double digits, 10, 11% you know, within those 20 years. We did the exact opposite here. Uh, we spent money for Nebraska Promise. That costs us uh, some amount of money. We're still now analyzing that, but it looks like it's gonna be less than our advertised $5 million price tag. That, that was not put on the backs of the Nebraska taxpayers. We did that to ourselves within our $43 million self-imposed budgetary cut over the next three years. And inside of that, we also put some priorities into money, for example, to help um, bring the salaries of our faculty on par with their peers. So our faculty at Lincoln and our faculty at the medical center, uh, they're more than 4% below their peers. So in the middle of an economic crisis, in the middle of where it looked like enrollment might be down a little bit and our revenues might be down a little bit, we made that a priority. And that money to help get that right is not only in our budgetary request for the next biennium, it's built into that $43 million that we self-imposed cut. So I, I made a promise to the faculty that we would correct that uh, and we're going to do that. I'll give you another example. Uh, we knew that online programs are gonna be hot. A lot of people are not ready to come back in the classroom. We wanted to make sure that people had that choice. And when I looked at our online programs, we actually cost more uh, for a course in the, uh, the dollars per credit hour than going to a course in person. And that just didn't seem right to me. So I worked with the chancellors. They agreed with this approach and we adjusted the cost. In fact, uh, UNL dropped the cost per credit hour for an online course by 7% and 9% at Omaha. Those are significant cuts when you look at the overall monetary approach to what we're doing. So yes, I am the CEO of a $2 billion a year plus program. I get that and I have a responsibility to that. But at the end of the day, if we don't serve our students and we don't view them as our current and future customers for what we're doing, then we really are in the wrong business. So that's been my approach here. They are our North Star. They are who we care about the most. Uh, and we're gonna continue to make affordability, accessibility and growth uh, our absolute top priorities. And some of those things, the affordability and the growth specifically address those underrepresented populations that I know are important to you as they were when you were in the Navy, that uh, you had uh, reversed some of the trends, historic trends about the, the makeup of the, the body of the students there. Um, so the, these would seem to really be attractive to folks who otherwise would say, I'm priced out of the business here, or this doesn't look like me. You're trying to change a lot of those trends, aren't you? Yeah, it's a really simple approach. You know, the more diverse we are, uh, the better off we will be, not just as a, you know, an educational society, but as a society writ large. So when I was at the Naval Academy, you know, this is a, a program that produces officers, commissioned officers for the Navy and the Marine Corps. It doesn't produce all of the officers. It's roughly about a third of the officers for the Navy and about one fifth of the officers for the Marine Corps. They cut the other ones come through ROTC and officer uh, candidate schools. But I wanted our midshipmen to be representative of the nation that they serve. 
Uh, so if we looked at the demographics of the nation. If we didn't look like the nation, then we weren't making the right approach. Uh, and yes, it was hard to turn that around. But by my third year out of the five years I was there, uh, the white male was suddenly a minority. First time in 175 year history that happened. Now I'll share with you that not everybody was thrilled with that. Um, some people thought that we were you know, creating some sort of affirmative action plan. And the, the truth is that's not, we never lowered standards. Uh, our graduation rate for every cohort of minority versus white male, white female, black female, black males, all were within 5% of each other. So I've taken some of the things I've learned from bringing those you know, students, again, a much smaller campus size compared to what we're talking about here in Nebraska, 4,000 midshipmen compared to 52,000. But the modeling is not too dissimilar. And yes, we should be representative of what and who we look like here in the state of Nebraska. But as we're going to grow the university, we're going to look outside our own boundaries, outside of our state, not just our neighboring states, but across the whole country. I want to be attractive to students from Maine to California to Oregon to Florida. And I think because of the value of what we have here and how we're going to be a more diverse campus. And again, this is challenging because it isn't just about the students. How do you make the faculty and staff look like this changing demographic of our students? We've changed dramatically just in the year of this fall semester and who's now in our you know, classroom seats on the campus. It takes longer to change out the faculty and staff because they don't leave their jobs as often. So again, it takes hard work, it takes focus, and it takes a lot of dialogue between all the campuses, listening to the voices of our students. I mean, the racial unrest that we've seen in our nation and even in Omaha and Lincoln, it's loud. And if we're not paying attention to it, we're missing the point. To some of the initiatives that you've mentioned already, like the, uh, the Nebraska Promise and things along that line, um, some of those things at first blush may seem to folks who aren't involved in the discussion sort of counterintuitive. You know, if, we're, if our funding is low, how are we even reducing, how are we even considering reducing tuition further? But to me, this seems to speak to the idea that what universities do is research into any decisions that are made and that the, the research that you and your colleagues obviously put into play here was that, that in some cases, the reduction in the income coming in was actually better off for us in the long run, even though at first blush, it might have seemed like, wait a minute, you need money and you're reducing tuition? How does that work? Yeah, for your listeners, uh, I'm going to give them a real quick economic college university 101. You know, so if you think about the University of Nebraska as a $2 billion budget, uh, about $600 million of that comes from uh, tax revenues for Nebraskans. About $400 million comes from revenues for tuition. And of course, that can move up and down. And there are quite a bit of uh, monies that come from remittance, from scholarships. But some of those are offset by federal dollars that come in for, for, for example, Pell Grants. So roughly, it's about a billion dollars a year for what we call state revenue. So that's taxpayer money plus tuition for students that attend the campus. Then the other billion dollars is, as you pointed out, things like research. Research takes up about $500 million across all of our campuses, and it's growing. We've done remarkable work there. And this starts to get after the idea of reputation and who you are and how do you attract you know, a counter-terrorism uh, intelligence organization to want to you know, create a big shop in Omaha. How do we have the reputation uh, for our National Strategic Research Institute that works with the Department of Defense sponsored by U.S. Strategic Command to achieve another $92 million DOD contract? 
to do really, really important work, some of it in strategic deterrence. Um, and then there's the other revenue part, which uh, happens because you have more students on campus. So tuition is only part of it. The cost of attendance is often housing, uh, food, uh, special events, athletics is in there. And yes, we have taken a hit. We lost $50 million in the spring, never to be recovered. I mean, that's just a loss of revenues from sporting events and special events, even graduation. And some of that impacts even the local economy in Lincoln and Omaha. As we've gone into the fall, we've done a little better with that. Obviously we have students in housing, but we've had to space people out. The, the dorms are not full to capacity. Uh, you know, eating in the cafeterias is a much different experience. Uh, I have been to the East Union campus and eaten there myself. And it's fantastic as we reopened that uh, here at the flagship in Lincoln, but it's not packed with uh, students. Not, and of course it shouldn't be, right? Um, and then of course, sporting events. Now, we're very fortunate here that uh, Husker Athletics is so powerful and so well supported by the people in Nebraska that it runs independent. It does not run on taxpayer dollars, but it is have an impact on the university because historically they've given $10 million in scholarship and offset monies. We're not gonna see that this year. Um, we're excited to see football come back, but it's gonna take a year to recover from that. And we're thinking through all of the details to how to do that. First of all, I'll just say how proud I am that we haven't had to cut a sport uh, at uh, uh, Lincoln and we haven't had to cut a sport in Omaha or in Kearney. And given what's happening, you've seen this happening on so many other campuses, uh, that's the thoughtful nature by which we've looked across this entire uh, financial enterprise. And yes, we cut $43 million on ourselves over the next three years, compare that to that roughly $1 billion of state-aided budget, we're talking about one and a half percent over three years we'll be able to absorb that. There'll be some hard decisions to make. I made some of them right here at Varner Hall. Uh, I cut 10% of my own staff and my own budget to lead the way. And the other chancellors will have to do some similar, not quite to that level. Um, but this is how we get leaner and this is how we're gonna get better. And again, from my position, economically, as well as for the strategy that we're following, we're gonna come out of this stronger over the next two years. It's the old necessity is the mother of invention kind of uh, kind of phrase there that the, exactly. some of these things we might not have uh, might not have done had we not been gently pushed that direction to make some of those changes. So a great point. Since you mentioned the uh, state appropriations, uh, legislative session will be coming up again here in a few months. How do you view the university's uh, relationship with the legislature and what kind of a, of a proposal do you anticipate for state aid for next year? Well, I have to first compliment the you know, the unicameral, the most unique legislative body of any state in the country. Uh, and it works. I mean, I got a, a you know, a crash course in that uh, here this past year, even though it wasn't necessarily a budget year on the short session. Uh, I spent a lot of time over in the state capitol prior to COVID. I've done a lot of Zoom calls and a lot of phone calls to get to know all 49 senators. Uh, I have a really great relationship with Governor Pete Ricketts, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, so, they, you know, as I've gotten to know the unicameral, they value what we do at the university. Uh, and I'm comfortable with where we are. Uh, what I promise them is that, well, I, I will never ask for something that I don't absolutely need. Uh, normally our budget would need to go up about three to three and a half percent to keep up with cost of living, pay increases, health insurance, you know, all these things that are just the reality of life that cost money. Uh, we're not going to ask for three or even three and a half percent over the next biennium. We're going to ask for very modest 2%. Uh, 
And that's focused on just those cost of living uh, indexes going up, as well as trying to adjust those faculty pay to put them on their peer average. And interestingly, all of the other academic programs from community colleges to the state college system here have followed suit with us. And I think that's a, that's a fair approach. You had a, uh, some upbringing that involved education. Your mom was a teacher. What did she teach you about the value of education and, and uh, what would you think of, uh, of knowing where you are right now and, and uh, how that has led to your career path? Yeah, thanks for asking that. Uh, my mom died in uh, 2005 at a, at a very young age. Uh, she was not quite 70. Uh, she was a English teacher for 35 years. Uh, she was dedicated to her profession. And I think if I took one thing about, away from it is A, how hard she worked, how little money she was paid in doing it, even though I probably didn't have a good sense of that as a teenager growing up. Uh, but I got to see it firsthand because I was in her classroom. Uh, three out of my four years in high school for one high school town, I was one of her students because she taught honors English and uh, she beat me mercifully. I mean, she really, really was tough on me. Uh, I just called her mom, but the students called her Sergeant Carter uh, as a, uh, to honor the Gomer Pyle series that was popular at the time. And uh, she taught me how to write and I give her a lot of credit in that. Uh, there's nothing that she would be more proud of to know that I'm in academia, that I support what happens in the classroom. Uh, I'm a big believer in liberal arts, uh, even though I have more of a technical education background in nuclear engineering and physics and science. But uh, I think I got that same uh, passion bone that she had for education. And, you know, I didn't really ask to be the president of the Naval War College, uh, you know, in my 30 uh, third year in the Navy, and then to be asked to run my alma mater, the Naval Academy, for my last five years on active duty. I mean, those were special gifts that were given to me as a flag officer. And that's where I was given, you know, the opportunity to really learn how to be an administrator uh, in higher education, two very storied programs, probably the two best academic programs that the military has. Um, and then to be given the privilege to come to a fantastic organization here, like the University of Nebraska, uh, I, I pinch myself every day. And I actually believe that I'm where I'm supposed to be. There's something fateful uh, about how things just happen. Uh, I didn't come looking for the University of Nebraska. I had actually tried a couple of the university systems uh, uh, prior to retiring, and uh, those doors just didn't really open for me. But this one did. So I am uh, feeling like I'm where I'm supposed to be. And given the crisis that we've been in and how we've navigated it thus far, we still have a lot of work to do. Uh, I feel like I'm where, right where I'm supposed to be. Well, having been here for 10 months, uh, what is what do you think would be an example of one of the best kept secrets the University of Nebraska system has that we need to be uh, championing a little more ourselves? What, what, do, what does our own population not know about us that you think we need to know more about? Well, one thing that I would say is uh, the arts. Um, you know, the Lead Center is uh, one of the most amazing places I've ever seen. And I've, I've been around. I've, uh, I played music as a youth, so I have at least an appreciation for it. I'm not going to say how good or not good I was, but I have an appreciation for music. My sister is a drama teacher in Maine. My mom did that also as another side gig, if you will. So I was uh, I was drawn to some of that and, and actually performed in a few pieces to, back in my youth. So I love all of that. 
and you know, what happens at the lead center, what happens in Omaha, the voices, some of the uh, orchestral organizations that we have, I think they're some of the best kept secrets. Um, and yes, even though some, there was some talk about uh, losing the dance program at UNL to see people step up and want to save that program, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy that happened. You know, like I said, we're going to have to make some tough decisions, um, but sometimes things just work out. So for those friends of uh, Lincoln Dancing, University of Nebraska Lincoln Dancing, thank you for doing that. Absolutely. I think that, uh, that that speaks volumes to the fact that the arts can help soothe our souls during these tough pandemic times and then times of upheaval. The Lead Center is a jewel in the United States, I think, and I'm, I'm pleased that you've found it to be so as well. Uh, the strategic plan released in August had several step-by-step -step points of things that you wanted to, to work through, and then also some strategies on how to get us there. It's only a few months old, but are you seeing the, the, some success already in what you'd lined up? I think so. I mean, it's a little early to tell on everything. We talked a little bit about enrollment. Uh, the other really big element in that, and I'll, and I'll kind of give it to you in two pieces. One is a, a red tape initiative. Again, when we're as big as I described earlier, uh, we are basically a bureaucracy onto ourselves. And to try to uh, be as lean and uh, dynamic as you can be is going to require us to look inside ourselves. You know, for us at Central Administration, uh, I don't want to be that, that giant beast that has to have fed information all the time so that we can manage the whole university. Uh, I want us to be the piece that makes the university better. So that means that we're focused on policy. Uh, we're looking at things that we do system-wide that make sense. So for example, one IT system, that certainly makes sense. How we procure things. I mean, we spend about $700 million a year on stuff that we buy. And when I say stuff, I'm talking about more than papers and pencils and paper clips. I'm talking about scientific equipment, you know, basically stuff. And right now that's done uh, in, you know, small silos on each campus. Imagine if we had a procurement officer that can help get us a better deal so that that can benefit every, every one of our campuses. I mean, even just a couple percent savings could be, you know, more than that $43 million cut that we've already self-imposed. So those are the types of things that I'm initiating for us to be uh, more efficient. Uh, one of the biggest things that uh, I came in looking at, and, and I'll admit that some of this comes from my background uh, in running the Naval Academy, where we were a very small campus, 355 acres, uh, with a little bit more than 65 buildings total, but those buildings were all over 100 years old, uh, you know, mostly built at the turn of the century. Well, to maintain and sustain those took a lot of effort. Uh, we're not too dissimilar. In fact, in some cases, we're in tougher shape here across our university system. Uh, we have 900 buildings, 900 buildings. Our flagship at Lincoln between the main campus and East campus uh, is close to 600 buildings. So th these are large, large uh, facilities for the state. And in fact, uh, you know, you talked about the 500 mile wide campus. You're exactly right. We represent 70% of all of the state owned buildings at the University of Nebraska system. Uh, and that's a replacement value of uh, about $10 billion. So think about how important it is that we sustain that and keep that moving along and make it relevant for our students to live and learn. Uh, we have not had a sustainability plan for those buildings, but we do now. Uh, so we're going to invest with state aid as well as our own budget 
to invest about $2 billion over the next 30 years and have an actual plan to sustain these buildings. You know, the average lifespan of an academic building uh, with some modest maintenance in it is about 50 years. So right now of those 900 buildings, probably close to half are well over those 50 year lifespan. Um, you know, I'll give you an example, the Otto Olson building uh, that was in Kearney, that was built in 1955. That was still our principal STEM building up until recently. That building was built in 1955 to last 15 years. So in 1970, that building was supposed to be obsolete. And yet here we were, you know, in the 90s, 2000, you know, cabling, internet, trying to make that building do something it wasn't intended to do. Well, we're finally gonna take that building down and new Discovery Hall built for $30 million, 90,000 square feet uh, is going to be the future of education. And I'm just could not be more thrilled that we're replacing something with something that's going to truly live for the next 50 to 100 years with the right maintenance plan. That type of thinking is what is gonna make us relevant going in the future. So we have a lot of work to do there. Uh, I'm gonna be uh, pretty hard on looking at how do we make our oldest buildings shine. And then when we put something new up, put it up with purpose, not just to add, but to replace. A dreaded term, the old deferred maintenance that tends to come up a lot of times in budgets, which is uh, sort of kicking that uh, maintenance can down the road a little bit. But uh, it, it may seem like a short-term gain, but long-term, no, you can't keep uh, those older buildings going forever. I remember when I first joined the university and I was not complaining, I guess, but asking a little about the red tape issue that you brought up. And my supervisor at that point made a very cogent uh, comment to me where he said, Remember, Rick, it's never our money we're dealing with, and it's an accountability issue. We have to make sure that that this money is being spent wisely because it's someone else's that's given it to us. And uh, But yes, it is easy to get caught up in that red tape, so I was pleased to see that in the strategic plan as something that you uh, hope to at least loosen up a little bit. That would all be helpful. I kind of have two things uh, that are associated with that. Uh, one is uh, we don't spend money we don't have, uh, and uh, the... Uh, the second one is, and when it comes to deferred maintenance, it's pay me now or pay me a lot more later. <laughs> Absolutely. Wise words. Well, uh, President Carter, we certainly appreciate your time this morning. We're delighted to have you as part of the university system. I know that uh, even your installation process took a little bit of a different look than perhaps some had in the past because uh, we were not able to do the, the full live version that we had. But necessity, again, the mother of invention, and we got a lot of things accomplished online and, and for the future. And uh, we look forward to seeing how it all comes together, how your strategic plan lays out and how we move forward as a university and one of the state's leading economic drivers in the, the, in the months to come. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you, Rick. Enjoy talking to you and I look forward to it again. Indeed, sir. Well, I'll take you up on that one. Our guest this morning, Ted Carter, the president of the University of Nebraska System. I'm Rick Alloway. This has been Campus Voices. And as always, I thank you for your time this Sunday morning. This has been Campus Voices, issues, news, and notes from the campus of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. To comment on this program, call 402-472-3054 or email to krnu at unl.edu. Campus Voices is a public affairs presentation of 90.3 KRNU, Lincoln.